Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I hope everybody's paying attention today because we have someone calling in from New York City. And she is a political strategist. And she recently had a book come out called What's Left Unsaid. And her name is Melissa DeRosa. Welcome to the Unimpressed Podcast, Melissa. How are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So diving in, you got a few headlines with Mr. Cuomo. And did this kind of ignite writing this book? And what's the whole feel of that whole experience for you? You know, I decided I was going to write this book 24 hours after we were out of office. Um, you know, we had just gone through a year of being the global epicenter of COVID, leading the world through COVID. And then the year following, it was, you know, a year of scandal and undoing of the administration. And I told myself, right when we got out of office, I was going to write this book because I wasn't going to let the first draft of history stand because it was distorted and it was just wrong. And so I set out to write the book and the book starts, you know, January of 2020, right before COVID hits New York and it follows through beyond um, our administration. And it gives you a behind the scenes look at what was going on during the deadliest pandemic in a, a century. And um, it gives you a, a look at what was happening in the background as the administration was coming undone. So when you're playing two sides there, I'm, I'm sure you have family uh, in the New York City area or New York area or family just anywhere. And then you're behind the scenes of a pandemic. How does that look? You know, it was it was scary. It was unlike anything I had ever experienced or expected to experience in my lifetime. <laughs> Suddenly, the decisions you're making are literally life and death. Donald Trump had obviously abdicated his responsibility as commander in chief during that period of time. And really, the world was looking to Andrew Cuomo and our administration for facts and for reliable guidance on what to do. We brought basically the economic global epicenter of the world to a screeching halt when we closed Wall Wall Street and we shut down New York and the world listened and the people of New York listened. And it was like nothing I ever have experienced or thought that I would experience in any job or in this lifetime. Well, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we were up there uh, in New Jersey and Cuomo, he really had a good start out the gate. And then, you know, the political things started coming out and so forth. How did that narrative change from the beginning of this process to the end to kind of come at Cuomo in a negative light? When it started at a very positive light, how did it how did this negative light come about? You know, look, I think like anything else in life, it, it was the heart, you know, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. And I think that this country loves to do nothing more than build someone up to tear them down. And we went through a period of time when he could do no wrong and he was the hero and everything the administration did and said was right. And then fast forward eight months and he was the villain and nothing we could do. Uh, everything we did was wrong. And so it was this very interesting sort of almost like Joseph Campbell, you know, hero's journey 
um, Icarus getting too close to the sun and then being taken down. And we went through this period of time in 2021 where we were slowly starting to emerge from the pandemic. The vaccine had just been released. We were starting to get things more up and running and life is normal when all of a sudden, you know, these allegations of sexual harassment start to come out. And so then we were dealing with multiple scandals at once. We were dealing with the real life health you know, crisis. And then we were dealing with this political crisis and the undoing of the administration and the two intertwined um, in a way that I never, I never could have foreseen. And so that's essentially what happened. So what, what were your specific duties for Mr. Cuomo? I was secretary to the governor. So that is the senior most unelected position in New York state government. It's akin to the White House chief of staff. I was the first woman to hold the position and one of the youngest to ever get appointed to the position. And it essentially means that you're in charge of government. You are the governor's right hand and you're overseeing everything big and small. And so during the pandemic, that obviously took on a, a whole different meaning. Um, but it is a constitutional position and it was one that I you know, worked towards since I was a kid. And then suddenly you find yourself where you always wanted to be and you look out and you say, wait, I didn't sign on for this. So it was, you kind of, you, you got the brass ring or the gold ring and then you realized, hey, this may not be as shiny as I thought it was. You know, look, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And I'm so, even despite everything that we went through, I'm so happy that I was able to be in that position during that period of time and everything that I was there for leading up to it. Massive contributions legislatively, infrastructure, you know, the Tappan Zee Bridge, the Second Avenue Subway, Moynihan Train Hall, LaGuardia. Um, and so I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But being, you know, being in that spotlight, when the spotlight becomes a searchlight, and it feels like everyone is coming after you was a very intense, highly stressful thing where you're in this pressure cooker, and you don't know how to get out. And what was Mr. Cuomo like? What was he actually like? Because I know, you know, being in the entertainment industry myself, obviously, a lot of times those narratives get a little inflated. And, you know, that could go either direction. I mean, what was your personal experience? So, I mean, listen, I think we live in a in a time where everything is so sensationalized on, on both sides, right? In the good and in the bad. And we really reduced everyone to caricatures and these one dimensional figures that, you know, either hero or villain, love them or hate them, Republican, Democrat, you know, not, there's no, we've lost gray. We've lost the ability to have nuance and to see beyond the tabloid front page. And the governor is somebody who was incredibly hard, is incredibly hardworking, incredibly skilled, incredibly effective, tremendous leader. And, you know, he is also a great father and a really great boss and somebody who really cared about his staff and really cared about the real life impact of the policies that were getting done. But when you hang around as long as he had, you know, he had been there for his father's administration, Governor Mario Cuomo in the 80s. He was HUD secretary, he was attorney general, he was governor. And when you've done all of those jobs over a period of time and you do it with sharp elbows, with an eye towards getting things done, not necessarily people pleasing, then you amass a certain amount of people who are very excited if the opportunity presents itself to take you out. And that's hardball politics. And in that moment in 2011, you know, or 2021, excuse me, when some of these women started coming forward and the press lost all nuance and the press sort of acted like anything that was being said was tantamount to harassment or assault or misconduct. Were Was it as it was presented? Sure. He kissed people on the cheek. You know, he would put his hand on a woman's waist for a photograph. 
He, you know, and men and women, by the way, he would touch people's faces at a wedding. But this is not harassment. This is not misconduct. But it was made out to be in this sort of hysteria of the Me Too mo movement meets politics, meets extremism, and the whole thing sort of combusted. Because, you know, the the Italian ladies in New York, they, they love uh, Mr. Cuomo. You know, my neighbors in, in New Jersey, and I have Italian. I'm Italian. We have Italian in our family. My dad's Italian. And in a way that it's kind of, I say that the difference between New Jersey and New York and some other places in, you know, in the United States is even though there's more, a little more craziness, there's there's a level of respect and how people operate and how they kind of abide by the rules to some extent from a respect level. And, you know, being Italian, Italian families, you know, they, that's how they do. You know, my family, they go up, they kiss somebody, they hug somebody, they take a picture. They don't think twice about it. I mean, is that basically what you're saying? It's just uh, a, a cultural nuance if you will, kind of maybe put him in this position because they were looking for a speck of whatever they could find to try to give him a hard time? You know, I don't know if it's even cultural. I think that it's plain vanilla meet and greet. It's what we see Joe Biden do, you know, every day today when he goes to a flood zone and he's hugging flood victims or when, you know, there's little kids around him, he's doing a bill signing. You know, we see governors, mayors, politicians, all across America doing these things. This was the weaponization of everyday interaction for, for politics. And it created this hysteria. And it was, you know, it couldn't have happened without the media. And the media was happy to not only go along, but to sort of drive this manufactured scandal. And so you had a situation where there was this woman who complained that at a wedding, the governor had officiated while he was walking around working the room. He put his hands on her face to greet her. And she complained that that made her feel uncomfortable. And the New York Times put that photograph on the front page of the paper. And so in doing that, it sort of communicated to the intelligentsia, to the world, to other media, this is what a front page of the New York Times sexual misconduct offense now is. And so it created this massive sort of race to the bottom, where you then had women who were saying, I wasn't sexually harassed, but one time he kissed me on the cheek and that feels outdated. And they were accuser number four. Accuser number five, accuser number six. And so, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book. It's actually a chapter I call Media Circus and the media's role in standing up this phony number 11. And, you know, be, like everything was just given a number. And so there was no details. There was no nuance. And the public sort of just got lost in the swirl. And now a few years later, it's very interesting. I get stopped on the street. I meet people in restaurants. I see them at events. And they say, why did the governor resign? Like, this all feels very silly and stupid. And why did this happen? And there's no good answer because that's sort of exactly what it was. So it, it was just, it was pure insanity of the moment. And unfortunately, we were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, is this, I was thinking about this this morning about politics. And I, I try not to watch politics or get into it. Um, or pick a side or anything like that. I just, uh, I kind of look at people and, and how people operate. I mean, is this where we're at with politics? Is this kind of, you know, go after the jugular, bottom of the barrel mindset, you know, because the what I don't get about politicians in, in today's time is, do you realize that our kids are watching all this shit? You, you know what I mean? If, I mean, in this, if this yeah. is a strategy, you know, what is this teaching the younger generation. No, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Look, we're now in a situation where it's you impeached me, I'm going to impeach you. And it's the weaponization of anything you can get your hands on for political advantage. 
And, you know, that's the reality of, of where we are today. And it's really sad. And I think it's led to this hyper bipartisanship and tribalism where it's us against them. And the country is getting more and more divided as a result. Nothing's getting done at the federal level. Very little gets done through Congress. I mean, I think back to the 90s when Bill Clinton was being impeached and he was still meeting with Newt Gingrich to negotiate the budget, the man who was impeaching him. But for Bill Clinton, moving forward in government was more important than anything, you know, any sort of sideshow that was happening. And we've lost that now. It's all very personally motivated, politically motivated. It's not the people over anything anymore. It's just the politics above the people everywhere you look. And for people who want to get involved in politics now, I think for a lot of people, there's this consideration that if I get involved in this and my entire past will splash on the front page, they'll go after my family, they'll distort things in my personal life. And I think that that's a very legitimate concern. And it ultimately ends up driving good, talented people out of the business. I mean, is it, is this a show? Because I've heard, you know, some politicians, you know, you get behind that veil. You're like, hey, Bobby, how you doing today? You know, they're buddies, but, you know, in the public and when they're trying to do public service, they're enemies. What does that look like? Is that true? Not anymore. It used to be. I mean, remember, the, there were always those great stories about Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very close with, I think it was Kennedy. It was, you know, these people who have these staunch, uh, you know, opposition politically or governmentally, but who can be really good friends when the cameras aren't rolling. And I think something that changed dramatically during the Trump era is that that's no longer the case. I think that people really, you know, you are your politics now. And if you disagree with someone, you can't be in the same room with them. You know, you, you, people end 50 year long friendships over it. I mean, I talk about in the book, I was very close with Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who took out Liz Cheney to be the number three in the Republican conference. And we maintained a friendship that lasted over 20 years through both of us, but through her being a Democrat and me being a Republican. And it couldn't withstand Donald Trump. And I think that unfortunately, that's sort of where we've gotten now in politics and government, where people who disagree with one another politically can't stand each other. And what was the deal with Trump and Cuomo? I mean, I know they knew each other from New York. And obviously they they got a little aggravated with each other. What was was Trump just trying to go after him or what was the deal with that? Trump and the governor knew each other from New York. They both grew up in Queens, not that far from one another. They were raised by larger than life fathers. Um, you know, they both had their eye on big things. And Trump and the governor actually got along well at various points during our administration. And at other points, you know, we weren't speaking to them, to the White House. And during COVID, when Andrew Cuomo became the de facto commander in chief, Donald Trump got incredibly jealous of him and very paranoid that Democrats. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. We're going to swap out Joe Biden for Andrew Cuomo at the last minute. And then Andrew Cuomo was going to end up running against him for president. And so everything that he did was driven through that lens of this hysteria and fear that Andrew Cuomo might try to run against him for president, which was completely devoid of any sort of reality. There was never a situation where that was contemplated, but this is what was stuck in his mind. And so during COVID, the relationship was incredibly dysfunctional. There were moments when the governor was able to use the media and the pressure of the moment to get Donald Trump to do certain things for New York. But I mean, we went you know, weeks where we weren't talking to one another. He would, you know, say things in order to stir anarchy in New York and get people out on the streets to protest. He was threatening at one point to send National Guard in, which would have been a complete disaster. And so it was just, you know, personality politics. And uh, and I think fear that Andrew Cuomo was going to try to take him out as president was what was guiding his governmental response to COVID. Well, he might have been a, a better uh candidate, potentially a better candidate if he did run. You know, I like Cuomo. I liked his, you know, I liked his demeanor and I liked him, you know, as as he presented himself in New York. But when you when you think about these things that these I call them pocket narratives. There's a lot of pocket narratives in society that drive things a certain way. You know, if you're in politics, obviously, you know, science, you know, scientists. I talked to a lot of neuroscientists and, you know, we perpetuate a lot of negativity. And do you think politicians, when we we're talking about the kids earlier, do you think politicians understand that whatever we digest, whatever we take in based on our sensibilities pushes us in a certain direction? pushes humanity in a certain direction. Because when these pocket narratives come out, that's what they utilize to push people in a certain direction. You know, And I think that has a long-term effect that people are not thinking of. Do you think politicians are thinking of these long-term effects of these pocket narratives that may send someone down a certain road that could either shorten their life, change their life in a drastic way, why are we not thinking about things like that and understanding human behavior at its you know purest form? You know, look, I think that that's the way it's supposed to be. And I think that at some point in the last couple of decades, we've lost our footing and it has become so personal and it has become so driven by party politics. And I think that right now the entire objective is to be in power and stay in power. Consequences be damned. And so I do think that there are some good politicians out there, government leaders out there who do care about what you just described. But I think that they are in the exception, not the majority. And, and let's talk about like your feelings and how you felt through this. I mean, you're you're kind of trying to hold the pieces together based on your yeah. position. I mean, what what was the stress level with yourself. You know, I write about this extensively in the book. It was such a, a raw emotional time for me. The combination of the pressure and the stress of making those life or death decisions during COVID and then rolling straight into a year of the undoing of the administration in these manufactured scandals. You know, my and at the same time as I write in the book, I was dealing with a marriage that was collapsing, I was dealing with fertility issues, and I was dealing with very real intense mental health struggles. And I think that, you know, part of why I am so vulnerable and raw in the book as it relates to these things is I think part of what I'm trying to get people to understand and see is that at the end of the day, 
the people who run government are human. And I think that a lot of times the press forgets that and people forget that. And, you know, during COVID, I will say, you know, we saw the best and the worst in government. And in New York, I think that we saw the best people who really genuinely wanted to save lives, wanted to help, you know, these people that came in from all around the country to volunteer so that our hospital system wouldn't collapse. The essential workers who went onto the streets, you know, the government leaders who were sacrificing being with their own families because they had to quarantine for months in order to come to the office and not risk spreading the disease when we didn't know how bad it was early on. And so, you know, that period of time took a real toll on me that it took a very long time once we were out of office to recover from and get back to me being me again. And I, I really do hope that for people who read the book, that they see that, they're, that the people who are running the government are actually people and not just these caricatures that are presented in the media. So before you were in this position, I mean, what is your normal activity? Are you a spiritual person? Are you, are you, you know, into yoga? Do you do anything like that? I don't know what, tell us a little bit about, you know, who you were before this experience. Um, I'm not a yoga person. I'm a runner, um, which, you know, was something I relied upon very heavily to help keep my mental sanity through everything. That was a part of the day that I really valued and that kept my physical health and my mental health as in line as it could be during that period. Um, but, you know, I was born and raised in politics. My father was involved in government since I was eight years old. I was that kid on the campaign trail. I was reading four newspapers a day at 14. I was interning for the AFL-CIO political director at 16 for Hillary Clinton at 19. I mean, I set out from a very young age, very ambitious kid who wanted to rise to the highest levels of government because I viewed government as a vehicle to affect the most change and do the most good for the most number of people. And, you know, I fell in love with it and I'm still in love with it. And I still see the, the promise in it, you know, when you're able to sort of look past the peril. And I'm not a spiritual person. I would say I'm, you know, religious in terms of tradition. Um, but I do, I do believe in the goodness of people and the goodness of humanity. And I think we did see that in those early months during COVID, the way that everyone came together. And when I think about what I want to do next, have I given up on this world? Have I completely soured on it? Would I tell everyone to go running fast and far from coming near it? A little bit, yes. But then I think about the goodness of people that I saw during those early months of COVID. And it gives me enough hope to think there's still more to do. And maybe we can overcome this really ugly period in American history. So so you said you had uh, some marital issues. How? What was the direct effect to the marriage? You know, I think like every everyone else. And by the way, I wish people talked about this more openly because I think that part of the problem is the stigma around getting divorced or having marital issues and the fear of how other people will judge you or perceive you keeps us from talking about these things, which then keeps them in the closet, which then make it harder to manage for people on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I talk about that in the book that my, my ex-husband and I agreed to keep it secret for a long time that we were separated, what was going on from us because we didn't want it to be in the media. We didn't want to be gossiped about. But, you know, I married my ex-husband who I met at work. He was my best friend. We fell in love. We got married and he left working with me to go pursue something in the private sector. And not long after, we sort of realized that the glue that held us together was work and we were no longer working together. And that combined with my very high stress, very demanding, high pressure job and him wanting more attention, more time and me not being in a position to give it, you know, 
contributed to and caused the breakdown of our marriage. And so I don't know if that would happen for everyone. I, you know, I like to think that marriages can withstand these situations. I think maybe it was just not the right fit for me, but you know, it, 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 during those early months of COVID where I was already so isolated and felt so alone and making these larger than life decisions, I then didn't have someone to go home to or to call at the end of the day or text message in those moments where you feel afraid or you need someone to tell you you're doing a good job or keep going. And I think that, you know, something that we should talk about, I think it's something we should normalize and be able to talk about more openly so that, you know, other people who are facing similar situations don't feel like it's a negative stigma and that it is normal that we're all going through this and we support each other more. You know, people need to realize it's kind of like a song, you know, it was, you know, and I kind of had this rationale the other day when I was talking to my daughter and I let her hear a Wu-Tang rap song, right? And based on the pace of that song, right, is totally different than the pace of songs today. And you being on a political track and that pacing, right, is probably a lot different than the pacing would have been, I don't know, 10 years ago to a marriage. Do you think that speed and the, the technology and the world changing, do you think people realize those tracks are a lot faster? Yeah, I do. I think that, you know, we never stop, right? There was a time when we didn't all have cell phones. There was a time when social media didn't exist. There was a time when there were clear boundaries between, you know, when you're at home or when you're at work or your personal relationships and your professional relationships. I mean, to a certain degree, government and politics has always been 24-7. It's highly demanding because you don't get to choose when a snowstorm hits or a pandemic hits or a terrorist, you know, there's a terrorist attack. When you serve at these very high levels in both state and federal government, you're sort of choosing to marry the job for that period of time. But I think as a nation, I think that the the crossover and the bleeding between you know, what your work life is and what your home life is. And then you layer that in with COVID where everyone started working from home and then you really had no boundaries, right? Because it used to be when you were home, you would have a glass of wine, separate yourself from your day, you know, be with your loved ones. But now your home for a lot of people is also your office. And so it does feel like the 24, 24 hour nature of the news cycle, of social media, of work, of work and the lack of work-life balance has contributed to that speeding up of everything. So what does Melissa DeRosa want to do now? What's her aspirations? Where are you headed? What's your goals moving forward? You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. When the administration collapsed, I disappeared to Cape Cod. I was being hounded by paparazzi. I was a shell of a person. I didn't know if I wanted to get up the next day. And I spent a couple of months away and worked, you know, started writing this book and, you know, had thought a lot about, <laughs> is this time to pick up and move to Paris? Is this time to pursue something in the entertainment industry? Is this time that I open a restaurant? You know, like, what do I want next? I'm 41 years old. When everything happened, I was 39 years old. So I was in this 38, actually, when the administration collapsed. And so I was in this place where it's like, I have another lifetime and a half ahead of me. And no matter what I do or what I contemplate and think about and fantasize about, everything always comes back to public service. <laughs> And maybe that makes me a completely sick human being, but my first and only love is government and politics. So 
you know, I don't know what form it will take, but I think I'm going to be back in public service at some point in some form or fashion. Well, I think you'll do very well. You seem very centered to deal what you've dealt with and, and still be strong and moving forward. I mean, I, you know, I applaud you for that. And, you know, as far as the book goes, where can we find the book? What are your goals uh, of the book and so forth? I'm hoping that the book you know, provides the public with answers about what was happening during the epicenter of a once in a lifetime pand pandemic, fills them in on what conversations were being had, how decisions were being made, who the players were, because I think that the public has a right to know. And I hope that it sets the record straight because during those two years, it was the fog of COVID and what was being reported versus what actually was transpiring were couldn't be further away from one another. And so I'm I'm trying to, you know, I want to communicate to the public first and foremost so they understand what was actually going on. And I'm writing the second draft of history, which is told by people who were in the room based on firsthand accounts. And so, you know, I'm writing over the first draft of history, which was not correct. So that is my hope. And I hope that it brings people some peace. It's certainly the process brought me peace in writing the story and telling the story and putting it out into the world for people to consume and judge on their own. And I hope that next time there's another pandemic or we find ourselves in a manufactured scandal or hysteria, that everyone's able to take a beat and remember what happened here and learn from it and be better because of it. Nice. And, and the book can be bought where? Amazon? and Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, most local, you know, independent bookstores. But for people outside of the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts area, I think it's best to jump on Amazon. It's gotten a, a great amount of attention, a lot of positive reviews. So I'm really excited about the reception it's got. And I hope that people read it. It's called What's Left Unsaid. What's Left Unsaid. Well, well, hopefully people have learned a lot from this conversation and hopefully we've touched on all the, the things we should have touched on. Is there anything else that you might want to put out there that we maybe didn't talk about? No, I think we, we hit it all. I just, I hope that people read the book. I hope people, you know, are able to better understand what happened. And I hope that people moving forward can internalize some of the lessons I took away from it. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. And this has been political strategist and author, Melissa DeRosa. And I'm John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 